so good. I don't know how I can add to all that. And I'm really not going to. Uh, what I want to do is just take a little bit of time and consider together some of the words you just sang yourself or heard from the choir or even the kids. I think if you stop and think, I, I was surprised myself. How many of the Christmas carols we sing talk about Jesus as our king? It's fitting because of what we've been going through this uh, last season, uh, looking at the life of David. But we sang Noel. Born is the king of Israel. We sang glorious Jesus, our hope, our king. Even with the little drummer boy, our finest gifts we bring to lay before the king. I think we probably breeze right past those references in our culture because we have no context for a monarchy, right? We live in a democracy where everybody has a right to their own opinion. Decisions are made by the majority opinion. And if we're honest, the idea of being ruled by a king is not all that appealing. <laughs> the good news is it wasn't all that appealing even to God himself. If you look back in Deuteronomy, when God is speaking to Moses, he, he talks about a time and, and a, a desire that the people would have, that the people of Israel would one day have in the years to come. What I'm going to read to you, he spoke to Moses 400 years before Saul was anointed to be their first king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 14, it says, When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations who are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not of your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. I think if you, it's interesting if you look at what he just said, that they should not multiply horses. They should not multiply wives. They should not multiply wealth. If you look at the history of Israel's kings, they did all three. So clearly, the kingdom of God is not safe in the hands of man. It's the reason why the prophet Samuel was so reluctant to anoint a king over Israel when they made that request of him. In fact, God is the one who had to convince Samuel to follow through with their request. Listen to what he says in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you have grown old and your sons do not walk in the ways. Now appoint a king over us to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when, he, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So now we're getting to the heart 
of the issue. God didn't want Israel following a king because they already had one. It's like Jesus teaches in the New Testament when he says you cannot serve two masters. You will either love the one and hate the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. The very same thing is happening here. It's the Old Testament version of what Jesus was teaching because you cannot serve two kings. You will have to reject one in order to give allegiance to the other. And that's precisely what's going on here. Israel had to reject God in order to follow Saul as their king. But God is gracious. He's abundant in loving kindness. He's slow to anger. He's quick to forgive. God would let Israel go their own way. He would let them choose for themselves to have a king. But he would always stand ready to rescue. In fact, God would use their sinful decision to accomplish a redemptive outcome. He let Israel make the first move. And they chose Saul to be their first king. And as you read in the scriptures, you kind of understand why. Everything about Saul screamed royalty. He looked like a king. In fact, the scripture says that there was not a more handsome man in all of Israel. He came from a, a wealthy family. He was a born leader. It was such an obvious choice that Israel didn't even ask God for his opinion. It was Samuel. He was the man. But to make a long story short, it was a disaster. Saul broke under the pressure of trying to please people instead of learning to trust in the Lord. He repeatedly rejected God's guidance. And so God rejected his rule. And the people of Israel suffered greatly under that rule. So God said, well, you've had your chance. Now it's my turn. The people chose based on an outward appearance. God would choose based on something he sees on the inside. We know that because of what's written in, in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, where it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Speaking of Saul or David's brother. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So God chose David because of something he saw in his heart. Which doesn't mean, as we well know because of our study over the last few months, that doesn't mean that David was a man of flawless perfection. In fact, just the opposite. He was a man who struggled with sin, just like you and I. But what made David unique was his relentless pursuit of God's deliverance. Whether that was deliverance from his enemies when they were in pursuit, or it was deliverance from his sin when he was in rebellion. David was convinced that salvation belongs to the Lord. Only God could accomplish what David failed to do on his own. You see, Saul's greatest weakness is one that he and us have in common. And this is it. Saul trusted himself way too much. David at least had the, the mindset to repent of his sin and run to God for rescue. 
I think that's precisely the reason God chose him to be king. That's what set him apart, was he looked to God for salvation. In fact, David is important because David turns the people of Israel to the one true king that they should have been following all along. God chose David not because of what he would do for him, but what God would do through him. God made a covenant promise to bring about a redemptive work through the lineage of David, a descendant of David, who would establish an everlasting kingdom. And we know that that promise was fulfilled through Jesus Christ, and that's why we call him our king, from the royal lineage of a covenant promise. We looked at this passage last week. But we know that this is true because it's explicit in Scripture. It says in Luke chapter 1, verse 30, And the angel said to her, speaking to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. Christmas is about a kingdom. It's about a king who would establish a kingdom in the lives of his people. A king who would come to to conquer our enemies and bring peace to all men. But it would not be accomplished as everyone expected it to. Because this king, King Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I want you to think about it this way. We already established the fact that that God didn't want Israel to appoint themselves a king because they already had one. God was their king. And God has ruled sovereignly over his creation since the beginning of time. So understand, when Jesus came, he did not come to establish a new kingdom. He came to bring God's kingdom to us. That's why he repeatedly announced, the kingdom of God has come near to you. The question is, and it was the question of the day during the time of Christ is, okay, well then how do we get in? How do we get into this kingdom that has come near to us? And Jesus made it clear all throughout his ministry and his teaching, you don't enter into the kingdom by worldly pursuits. He says, you have to have a righteousness that goes beyond religious obligation. And plenty of examples of that in their day. And he says, look, just because you show up at church every Sunday and do some good deeds doesn't mean you get in. He goes on to say that even wealth can be a barrier to entering into this kingdom because we learn to provide for ourselves and have what we need and then we don't need him. He says, now, what you actually need to do is you need to become like a child in order to enter into God's kingdom. So what that means is we gain entrance into the kingdom not because of our success, but because of our need. Like a child depends on his parents, we must depend on God to do something for us that we cannot accomplish on our own. 
we can only enter into God's kingdom because of what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the only way that you and I can enter into a kingdom of righteousness is when we possess a righteousness not of our own, but a righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ because of the forgiveness of our sins. It's like David taught us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot serve two kings. The peace of God will only rule on our hearts through faith in Jesus Christ. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. And His love must rule in our hearts. So, as the choir finishes up this final song, let me ask you to consider a question. Let me ask you to consider this question. Which kingdom do you belong to? Which kingdom do you belong to? Which king do you serve? Because remember, you cannot serve two kings. Do you serve the king that centers around you and your needs, what you want, what you feel like you deserve, what you get, to, what, what makes life work out like you think it should? Is that the kingdom that you live in? Where the kingdom, if you're honest, centers around you and your needs, your desires, what you get? Or do you serve a different kingdom? A kingdom that only exists because of what you've been given. The gift of eternal life. Something you couldn't accomplish on your own. A, a kingdom where the attention turns from what's best for me to what I can do for him. Out of praise and genuine worship. Because of what he's accomplished for me. You see, we can live in this world as citizens of a different kingdom. We can live in a world that centers around what's best for me and do what's right for him. But you can't serve two kings. You've got to choose which kingdom you're going to live in. So as this final song says, he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and he shall reign forevermore. So as we sing this last song, let's consider those words and before we do, let me pray for us. Lord, as we uh, sing together these final words, would you, would you maybe bring it to life in our hearts in ways that maybe we haven't recognized before? Would you help the words penetrate deeply into our hearts? Because we know that's what you see. You look at the heart. And you want to see a heart that has surrendered to you as king. You want to see a heart that lives for kingdom purposes that ultimately bring you praise and glory. You want, to be, you want us to be a people who this time of year are not so concerned about what we get, but are so grateful for what we've been given. And that we live with hearts of praise and worship because you, Jesus, are our one true king. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. Give